Since the Texas judge's decision dropped earlier this spring, the case of Braidwood v. Becerra has sent shutters down public health spine. Similar to earlier contraceptive mandate cases, the case involves plaintiff employers who object to paying for health insurance that includes coverage of disease screenings and prep for HIV on moral grounds. Like foxes guarding the hen house, payers quickly downplayed concerns and reassured us that preventive services would remain covered despite the decision. But PrEP coverage today is already suboptimal and stands to significantly worsen in the absence of the ACA requirement that payers cover it without cost sharing for patients. That was Richard Hughes, a partner with the law firm Epstein Becker Green. He served as vice president of public policy at Moderna during the COVID pandemic. He was reading from his recent first opinion essay on how to protect access to PrEP, or pre-exposure prophylaxis, to prevent HIV transmission. I'll bring you our conversation about PrEP and the threat to preventative care coverage in the U.S. after a quick break. I'm Jesse McQuarters, branded content editor for STAT. Recognizing the breadth and diversity of America's 53 million family caregivers, how can we better know and see these important unsung heroes? Lisa Wilson, Head of Caregiver Advancement Strategy and Experience at United Healthcare, offers insights. Family caregivers are a cornerstone of our health system, but it can be challenging to support them in the moments that matter. United Healthcare is breaking down the barriers to identifying and engaging caregivers. For example, we're making it easy for caregivers to establish necessary HIPAA permissions and encouraging self-identification. The more we know about this population, the more we see them, especially early on in their caregiving journey, the better support we can provide. For more information, visit uhc.com caregiving. Welcome to the First Opinion Podcast. I'm Tori Bosch, editor of First Opinion. First Opinion is Stat's platform for interesting, illuminating, and provocative articles about the life sciences writ large, written by biotech insiders, healthcare workers, researchers, and others. Richard, welcome to the show. Thanks so much, Tori. Thanks for having me. Um, to start, really basically, what is PrEP and why is access to it under threat right now? PrEP is a clinical preventive intervention designed to prevent the transmission of HIV. And so since 2012, uh, we've had oral forms of PrEP, which can be taken daily, uh, to pre again, to prevent the transmission. It's incredibly effective. In fact, nearly 100% effective in reducing transmission of, of HIV. And increasingly, we've seen new and innovative forms of PrEP, like long-acting injectable PrEP, that uh, tends to you know, provide longer uh, protection with, with just one shot. Um, and that essentially you know, increases the effectiveness of PrEP and further prevents the spread of um, HIV. And why is access to it under threat now? Uh, it's under threat because there are some plaintiff employers um, that sued in federal district court uh, objecting on religious and constitutional grounds to uh, the requirement that they provide uh, coverage that includes uh, preventive services, which, of course, include PrEP for HIV. They uh, object on moral grounds. They believe that uh, they are, by covering um, by covering PrEP, that they are complicit in behaviors that they disagree with. 
So this case has been sort of winding through the courts for a little while now. Um, As you said in your essay, when the first ruling came out, it was horrifying. Um, Right now, it seems that PrEP access is still relatively available um, under this framework. Um, Just yesterday, it seems that the plaintiffs in the case and the Biden administration came to an agreement that largely leaves the mandate in place for now while the case is being decided. Is that right? Uh, That's correct. It does leave a narrow exemption for the plaintiff employers to not uh, cover PrEP if they can find an insurance product that doesn't cover PrEP. Uh, They're allowed to purchase that product. But for the rest of the country, it leaves the requirement to cover PrEP uh, in place. I will say that does not mean that uh, coverage for PrEP today is necessarily optimal. Right. You know, as you write, even under this ACA coverage, which is far better than anything we had before, it wasn't ideal. So what exactly was the mechanism under which PrEP was covered under the ACA? And how did that fail to make PrEP as accessible to everybody who needed it as possible? You know, before the ACA, plans were inconsistent in their coverage of preventive health care. It, it was not um, optimal. And the ACA essentially uh, put into law a requirement that all commercial health insurance in the United States cover certain recommended uh, preventive services. And that includes all ACFP recommended vaccines. That includes certain preventive services for women and children, which is where we get the contraceptive mandate. And that includes all uh, USPSTF, United States Preventive Services Task Force recommendations with an A or B rating, uh, which includes PrEP, which has an A rating. Now, what we've seen is vaccine coverage is optimal. There's no formulary management of vaccines. All ACFP recommended vaccines have to be covered. And then you have PrEP, which was really the first biopharmaceutical product uh, in a while that the task force had recommended. And it made its recommendation in 2019. And there was this confusion around the recommendation because the task force historically is not recommending biopharmaceutical interventions. And so the question was, do you have to cover, do plans have to cover all forms of PrEP? Are they allowed to formulary manage PrEP? Do they have to cover the ancillary services associated with PrEP? So you have to do regular blood testing to stay on the PrEP regimen. So there was an effort to get clarity around that. And CMS released guidance in 2021, the summer of 2021, that said payers do in fact have to cover all of the ancillary services associated with PrEP, but otherwise they're allowed to formulary manage PrEP. So payers can prefer any PrEP product Uh, They're allowed to engage in all forms of of reasonable utilization management. And uh, essentially what this did was it put a lot of control in the hands of the payers uh, in terms of which forms of PrEP are accessible to patients. And so if you have a certain medical need uh, for a certain type of PrEP, it's really going to be determined by your payer which, which you get coverage for. But you can go through an exceptions process, which, of course, is going to be very cumbersome to do. Uh, So PrEP access really um, was not optimal before uh, this decision. And then the decision, as you said, it is is horrifying. It essentially um, destroys access to PrEP. And I want to get into the numbers a little bit. So when we talk about PrEP, how much are we talking about? Uh, If you you and your doctor decide that the best method for you or the best formula for you is, say, the long-acting injectable, your payer declines to cover it, 
how much money out of pocket are we talking about? I mean, it really depends on the type of prep. It could be anywhere from $60 to $2,000 a month. And again, you know, that's going to depend on which type of prep is uh, clinically appropriate uh, for the patient. You know, in $2,000 a month, I mean, that can be a great deal of money, especially if, say, you're someone who, um, you know, might not make a lot of money yourself. So you're saying that, you know, if the payers are not paying for the most medically appropriate, then it could be really a decision someone makes between taking an oral version that is maybe not right for them because they can't take it daily for some reason or just sort of not taking it at all, right? That's exactly right. And I think it's really important uh, not to get distracted by um, the sticker price associated with PrEP, but who should bear the cost of PrEP, right? That's what the ACA actually did was it said payers are going to have this responsibility and it's actually going to yield savings for payers, for the patient, for the healthcare system. We know it's been so well established that when a patient faces cost sharing for a preventive intervention, they're more likely to walk away. And that's true for Vaccines. If you uh, walk into the pharmacy before the IRA and try to get a Part D vaccine, like the shingles vaccine, and you faced any amount of cost sharing, you were more likely to walk away. You're more likely to lose a patient who should be on PrEP if they have to face that cost. And that's been really well established. Um, and so what the ACA did was, was it eliminated cost sharing. And not only, it's really two important requirements. It's this requirement to cover the clinical preventive intervention, in this case PrEP, and then it's the requirement to not impose cost sharing on the patient. And that's very intentional so that the patient does not face that cost and is more willing to get the intervention. And that means that they're going to avoid the risk of transmission. And so this actually will have consequences for our society overall if less people get on PrEP. It has consequences for the individual, uh, their partners, as well as uh, society at large. And so, you know, as we've said, it looks like for most people, besides those who work for these employers who are suing, right now, PrEP coverage remains largely in effect. But as you've pointed out, what exists right now is not an ideal system. You have an alternative idea. So what is your proposal for how to protect PrEP access regardless of what happens in this court case? Yeah, so I, you know, have made several suggestions, and one was featured in the article, which is to allow the Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices uh, at the CDC to make PrEP recommendations. And so, you know, what I'm really aiming to do in proposing some of these policy solutions is to, is to create administrative solutions, things that the uh, Biden administration can actually do without congressional intervention. Because to be honest with you, I do not think that there is a path through Congress to achieve the kind of reform that's going to, you know, to fix this. Um, I think that there is an opportunity here to, you know, satisfy uh, those who believe that the task force's exercise of this authority is, is unconstitutional. Um, and that can be done by increasing the oversight of the task force, increasing accountability, or shifting responsibility, again, to the, to the ACIP. Um, so all of those options would essentially resolve the constitutional concerns that, um, you know, resulted in this decision by the, the Texas court. Tell me a little bit more about what it would look like for PrEP to be recommended by the ACIP, which remind me what that stands for again. Yeah, that's the Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices. And so uh, that the ACIP has been around since the 1960s. 
And it actually has a really broad mandate for recommending, uh, in the law it says the Surgeon General, but recommending interventions to uh, control disease. And that's not limited to just vaccines. And in fact, we've seen the ACIP uh, recently revised its charter uh, to expand its role to include uh, antibody products. And so I think uh, we, see, we see the committee moving in a direction where they're thinking more expansively about their role and I think it does provide an opportunity to think even more expansively about the types of interventions that they recommend. And if you look at some of the differences across um, the recommending bodies that are referenced in the, in the ACA, there's some really fundamental differences. Uh, the United States Preventive Services Task Force does not move uh, with, with much speed. It's a highly deliberative body, and it's important that they evaluate evidence and, and ultimately get to that conclusion around net benefit that allows them to make their recommendations. But it often takes them four or five years to make recommendations. Uh, we didn't see a recommendation for PrEP until seven years after it was approved, and that's, that's really unfortunate. And this matters a lot because under the ACA's implementing rules, plans have until the plan year following the one-year anniversary of a recommendation to provide coverage. So let me just put that in perspective. If the task force recommends long-acting injectable PrEP this year, that means that plans will have until January of 2025 uh, before they have to provide first dollar coverage for long-acting injectable PrEP. That product came out the end of 2022. It was approved by the FDA at the end of 2022. So we see really delayed uh, coverage and access because of the, the delays in recommendations. The ACIP moves with a bit more speed. So typically they are evaluating products fairly, uh, fairly soon at their next meeting after um, FDA approval, and they're able to make recommendations more quickly. Uh, the CDC also has really comprehensive existing PrEP guidelines. And uh, what's important about those guidelines is they're actually very specific. They, they mention all of the available forms of PrEP, they're very comprehensive. And so if we went this direction, what you could see is um, eliminating that payer discretion and having broader recommendations and requirement that payers cover all forms of PrEP. And that requirement would be much clearer if the ACIP took on that responsibility. Now, I just wanna say it's a very unconventional idea. I think there are probably colleagues of mine in the vaccines community that would really scratch their head at this suggestion. Um, but I think that we shouldn't be, um, you know, siloed in the way that we think about clinical preventive interventions. These bodies act with a lot of inconsistency. They use inconsistent evidence and their recommendations really aren't well harmonized. And that creates a lot of confusion for payers, for providers, and ultimately for patients. There's a lot of evidence that says if a provider can't make a clear recommendation to a patient, then the patient, you know, is less likely to get the intervention. And so this is, to me, uh, a really important opportunity to create some of that clarity and assurance of coverage. Yeah, because, you know, as you're explaining that, I was just thinking, I'm a, a basically smart enough person who reads healthcare coverage and edits healthcare coverage. But even for me, it can be a little bit hard to follow what's going on in the weeds. And if you're someone who takes PrEP trying to follow what's going on and different proposals on how to protect it. I mean, this is all really complicated stuff. If someone who is saying like, look, Richard, I just need to know 
what needs to happen to protect my access to PrEP? What's sort of like the baseline way of how you would explain this proposal? Oh, gosh. It's, you know, it's it's really, it's a very complex situation, right? And um, I've, I've, I've studied public health law and insurance law, and it's still very hard sometimes for me to get my, <laughs> yes. get my head around it. Uh, there are really serious questions in this case about constitutional law, administrative law, religious liberty. Um, but what it really all boils down to is, um, you know, it's, it's, it's very important that we uphold the ability of the recommending bodies, including the task force, to make these recommendations and to continue to have uh, these recommendations pulled through in terms of coverage policy. Because ultimately, I mean, again, if a provider can't clearly say to a patient, you know, I recommend this for you, you know, if, if the provider has had a bad experience with, with a previous patient uh, experiencing non-coverage, say, you know, they might say to the patient, well, I'm not sure this is going to be covered. And that can be really discouraging. And so there are all these opportunities for breakdown and patient attrition. So what we really need to create that clarity for patients is for this law to be upheld, uh, for the recommendations to be clear, and for providers to have the assurance that they will be covered by payers. That makes a lot of sense. Thank you for that. Um, you know, going back to this alternative process you propose, um, which I love that you said some of your colleagues might look at you like, huh, what, what's this? But I, that's the kind of thinking that I really enjoy, especially um, for any potential pitchers to first opinion. I, I love a kind of wild idea. So let's say that um, whether because of what happens with with Braidwood, with the court case, or just because of sort of acknowledgement that this current system using the task force isn't working and we transfer authority over to um, the ACIP to handle this. Is there a danger that then we're just sort of kicking the can to another entity that would end up being challenged by the same sort of folks who are challenging um, the preventative coverage under the ACA in the first place? Sure. And, and I, I'm not suggesting that the ACIP is sort of perfect in every way or, or that it's, it's, it acts with speed. It's also a, a deliberative body, right? Um, but it does provide the broadest coverage that we know today under the preventive services uh, coverage provision. All vaccines that they recommend must be covered. And that's, that's a very good thing. But they faced their own challenge in this lawsuit earlier. And so, the uh, ACIP, as well as HRSA, the Health Resources and Services Administration, which uh, determines the requirements under the contraceptive mandate, both of these bodies were also challenged uh, in, the, in the district court. And what happened was the judge, uh, and this, this is where those constitutional and administrative law questions come in, uh, but let me just boil it down to one simple concept. The judge was looking for political accountability across these bodies. And so he compared uh, the task force with HRSA, with ACIP, and he looked across and he said, where, where is the accountability? And you have the task force operating fairly independently. So under its uh, authorizing statute uh, from 1984, it says that they're to be insulated from political influence, except to the extent that that is impracticable. Now, I think that that gives us an opening <laughs> to provide that political oversight, which is why I'm advocating, you know, for, for that as well, because I do think that there's an opportunity to resolve the issues, the legal issues that are before the court right now. 
But but the ACIP and HRSA, he looked at both of those entities and he saw that um, the CDC director has to sign off on ACIP recommendations. He saw that HRSA puts their rulemaking through, uh, you know, puts puts their recommendations through notice and comment rulemaking, uh, that there was accountability up the chain from agency leadership. There was real oversight happening. And he was fairly satisfied with that and said, okay, well, there's there's political accountability here. Um, so he dismissed on summary judgment those claims with respect to those bodies. But obviously, he ruled that uh, the task force uh, violates the appointments clause of the, of the U.S. Constitution because he did not see uh, similar accountability. You know, I don't agree with that decision. I think that there is sufficient accountability. Uh, but what I've been looking for are the ways that we can tweak um, that and create the kind of accountability. And I understand those who would be concerned. Well, do we want to politicize the task force? You know, would that risk politicizing prep recommendations? I mean, look at the other bodies. They are subject to oversight and accountability. And, you know, is, is there some risk in that? Sure, there's always going to be some risk in that, uh, depending on which administration is in power. Sure. Um, but by and large, I think that um, it's, it's a positive proposition um, to, to look at creating some of that accountability and oversight to, to satisfy the, the detractors and just make sure that the task force is on good, solid footing. Do you really think it would satisfy the detractors exactly or just sort of make it harder for them to challenge? I mean, I guess I'm getting to, does this feel like a good faith legal challenge to you? It's a really good question. Okay, I should probably break that down into, you know, it would satisfy, (laughs) hopefully it would satisfy the courts. You know, hopefully it would satisfy these judges and and ultimately probably the Supreme Court, because I think that's where we're headed. Uh, Hopefully it would satisfy them that, uh, that there's sufficient accountability. Now, the detract, the real detractors, the plaintiffs who continue to bring these types of cases, no, they're not going to go away. They're going to continue to object on all sorts of legal uh, grounds. And, and uh, you know, the constitutional arguments that they've made uh, were just arguments that they used to try to reach this result where they don't have to provide this type of coverage because in their worldview, they think society should... Uh, look a certain way. And they will continue to deploy, I think, all manner of legal arguments to try to reach that outcome. Now, you mentioned the Supreme Court. How are you feeling about where this Supreme Court might rule on this case? You know, it's it's really hard to say. The, the question around uh, the Religious Freedom and Restoration Act um, has been sort of skirted around in the contraceptive mandate cases, right? It's it's never been directly a question before the court about whether the government has to provide an exemption to um, the contraceptive mandate. This case could very, very directly bring that question before the court. And it's also going to bring these constitutional questions before the court. Justice Gorsuch is very interested in both of those issues. So he's very interested in uh, how we balance religious liberty against these requirements that are sort of general and, and generally applicable. Um, he's also very interested in this concept of the non-delegation doctrine and, and, and seeing its revival, uh, which essentially is just a different strand of the same issues I'm mentioning around the constitutional issue, the constitutional issues and, and political accountability. And so 
my hope would be that he would um, look on the constitutional issues and, and that the other justices together would look at the, on the constitutional side and consistent with previous cases, they would say, let's save this statute. Let's sever off the problematic part and save the rest of it because they've done that in other cases, very analogous cases. Um, and that's called severability. And I would hope that they would that they would do that uh, so that the task force and, and the rest of this law could be saved. I would hope that they recognize under the religious claims that there is nothing about this law that is substantially burdening the religion of the plaintiff employers. That, in fact, there is a, a very compelling governmental interest, and this was the least restrictive means um, to be able to accomplish that um, that interest. That's the test that's going to have to be satisfied. So I'm optimistic, I'm hopeful, uh, but, you know, these things are always sort of unpredictable. Now, I think we need to wrap up shortly, but you mentioned that you had some other ideas for how to protect PrEP. I wonder if you could briefly walk us through one or two other thoughts you have on how to protect it and expand access. Sure. And, you know, I actually think that they're relatively minor. It goes back to uh, to the, the law says, the authorizing statute for the task force says, to the extent practicable that they're to be insulated. Again, it's no longer practicable because of the, you know, the fact that this is being litigated and there's such a tremendous threat. So I think that that gives the Biden administration the authority to step in and take certain measures. And they're not drastic measures. All they really you know, have to do is, uh, and I'm not saying that this would solve everything right away overnight. But some of the things that they could do, they could authorize the director of the agency that staffs uh, the task force, which is the uh, Agency for uh, Health Research and Quality, ARC. They could, they could have that director come in and approve the recommendations. That would provide some political accountability, some oversight. They could put uh, the task force within the ambit of the Federal Advisory Committee Act and, uh, and, and, and manage it through that act. Um, and they could require the uh, the task force to uh, publish its recommendations and re- and require it to consider uh, public comment on those recommendations. Um, you know, it might take some combination of these of these approaches, uh, but I think these are very real solutions, uh, administrative law solutions that could cure some of the um, the things that uh, you know the courts might find problematic. Yeah, I mean, just to go back to something we touched on briefly earlier, what what strikes me about all of this is the kind of the creative legal maneuvering happening on both sides. You know, it's just these really tiny, tiny legal issues that are really now having to kind of be proxies for this broader war over LGBTQ and women's and people with uteruses rights. I mean, I could... could you just talk really briefly about sort of how that feels to try to have to kind of like dig into these corners of law about these fundamental human rights issues? Sure. I mean, it's it's concerning when you look below the surface that probably most Americans, you know, don't 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 realize that the same uh, legal advocates are behind the efforts that resulted in Dobbs and and this case. So there's a there's a connection there. And I think that's, you know, that's important to note. 
for me as a lawyer, um, I have to I have to separate my feelings sometimes. I'm, I'm very passionate about access to preventive health care. I've devoted my career to it. And I'm very passionate about ending HIV transmission, ending the epidemic. And that's deeply, deeply, deeply important to me. I must say the legal issues are, are just absolutely um, fascinating. And, you know, I love the fact that I get to dig into these things and try to come up with creative solutions uh, that I get to be an advocate around these issues. Um, you know, do I love the um, what's at stake and the potential outcome? Not at all. But I think that gives me an opportunity to step in and advocate uh, for the change that I'd like to see in the world. And I'm really excited I get to do that. Uh, well, I think that's a great note to end this on. Richard Hughes, thank you so much for joining the First Opinion Podcast today. Thank you so much, Tori. Thank you for listening to the First Opinion Podcast. It's produced by Teresa Gaffney. Alyssa Ambrose is the senior producer, and Rick Burke is the executive producer. I'd love to hear from listeners. I'd love to hear from more of you. Let me know which First Opinion contributors you'd like to hear on the show and what topics the podcast and the column should take on. You can do that by emailing me at first.opinion at statnews.com. And if you have a minute, please do leave a review or rating on whatever platform you use to get your podcasts. Until next time, I'm Tori Bosch, and please don't keep your opinions to yourself. <laughs>